Hosea tells uh, the story throughout, really, his prophecy uh, of God's relationship with Israel as a love affair gone wrong. Uh, That's the overall theme, and uh, we've been seeing that again and again. But uh, perhaps, like agitated lovers sometimes uh, are, he's not always absolutely clear in uh, the progression of his thought. There are just vivid pictures and images again and again in Hosea throughout much of his, uh, his prophecy. And sometimes it's hard to fit together the, the logic of what he's saying. Um, I hope, though, this morning we'll pick out uh, from the passage we're going to be looking at some of the key points that he's getting to at this point in his prophecy. And I'm just going to read a few verses um, uh, from the second half of chapter 9 and chapter 10 to get us a flavor of it. Chapter 9, verse 10. God says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Or uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Now their heart is deceitful. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Chapter 10, verse 9. Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you will help us to understand your word. Without your help, even the clearest word from you is opaque to us. With your help, even the most difficult word to you becomes light and truth and nourishment to us. So we pray, Lord, that you will help us this morning and change us so that as always when we meet you, we are changed and never the same again. Meet us through your word, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. What experience and history teach us is this, that people and governments never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Those are, those are actually the words of um, the philosopher Hegel in his introduction to his philosophy of history. It's been put in a slightly snappier form by the poet um, Steve Turner. Let me read it to you. Steve Turner says, History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. 
Somehow we human beings find it almost impossible to learn lessons from history or to live in the light of the past. Last uh, week, Judy and I actually watched the, uh, the video of Saving Private Ryan. We saw the film when it first came out, but we visited one of the Normandy landing beaches at half term on our holiday, and uh, that made us want to watch that film again. The beginning of the uh, film, if you've seen it, is set in today's world, the 1990s perhaps. We see an old man walking unsteadily with his children and his grandchildren at some distance behind him. He's in a war cemetery. He makes his way towards one particular white cross in the, in the rows and rows going in each direction of similar stones. From that moment, the film then cuts to, uh, to 1940 and we're put in the, in the middle of the terrible trauma of watching the, the D-Day invasion as if we were there. If you've seen it, it is deeply traumatizing. Captain John Miller is, one, is the uh, star. He's given the unusual job of finding Private James Ryan in the midst of the Battle of Normandy. All of Ryan's brothers have been killed and the High Command have decided that uh, this last son should be sent home to ease his mother's grief. Ultimately, in the story, Captain Miller is killed in saving Ryan's life. But as he dies, he whispers two words into the young Ryan's ear. He whispers to him, Earn this. And then the film cuts back to today again. Cuts back to that cemetery with the elderly James Ryan now, standing before John Miller's grave. And this old man turns to his wife and he says, Tell me I've been a good man. And his wife's actually confused. I mean, the children and grandchildren are, are entirely unaware of what's going on. But you see, this elderly man is giving voice to the fact that the whole of his life has been spent remembering the price that that man in Normandy paid for his life. He's been trying to live up to it. All his life he has been remembering Captain John Miller. Actually, one of the little details in the film, which for me is very poignant, watching it the second time, is the younger people around him. They're entirely unaware of what's going on. They're entirely thoughtless about uh, uh, the trauma their grandfather has been through. No idea. They've forgotten. They've forgotten the price that was paid by thousands upon thousands of people for the freedom that Europe now has. See, sadly, Christians too forget their spiritual history. And in forgetting that, Christians are in grave danger of repeating the very same mistakes that previous generations made. As Steve Turner said, history repeats itself. It has to. No one listens. 
That's going to be the substance of what Hosea is going to tell us this morning. Remember Hosea is describing a, a, a love affair gone wrong, a love affair between God and his people. Last week, uh, for instance, we saw that God repeatedly showed how they weren't listening to him any longer. They'd stopped listening to him as a lover should listen. But this week we're going to see how they've actually forgotten the history of that love affair. Actually, the triumphs and disasters of that love affair going back generations, even centuries, that should have taught them lessons, that should have brought them back and reunited them to God in a new and wonderfully intimate way, and yet which they are entirely, completely mindless of, kicking leaves around in the cemetery like those children. It's actually going to take us on a little tour of some of the historic sites of Israel's history. And he's going to tell his people again and again, you've forgotten me. You've forgotten the lessons that were learned on these very spots in history. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, take us on that tour, just, just point out in the second half of chapter 9 and chapter 10, some of the particular geographical spots that Hosea talks to, uh, speaks of and the lessons they should have learned there. The first spot he alerts us to is a place that he calls Baal Peor. It's there in chapter 9, verse 10. At Baal Peor, Hosea knew that they had forgotten that it was God who gave them freedom. God uses language of delight, actually, to describe his relationship with Israel. Do you see that? When I found Israel, verse 10, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. He's describing historically how he came and rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He describes it as if he was a parched wanderer in the desert, or perhaps a, a farmer. Uh, wandering amongst his trees in the early spring, and suddenly this dry-throated desert wanderer finds grapes in the middle of the desert. Suddenly this farmer, who's expecting nothing yet from his fruit trees, sees some first early figs, and he's so excited, so delighted. Well, says, God, I loved you like that. I found you in the desert like that. I delivered you from Egypt because of my delight in you. I treasured you. I savoured my relationship with you. I couldn't bear to see you being oppressed by those terrible Egyptian hordes. I did amazing miracles for you. I parted the Red Sea. I led you into freedom. I gave you miracle food in the desert called manna. But what did you do? Well, history records it very clearly. They came to this place called Baal Peor. And they decided that, they, that worshipping other gods looked like more fun. Especially since uh, worshipping the Baal of Peor involved sexual rites. And on that day, 24,000 people died 
as a result of Israel's terrible, ungrateful idolatry. See, these gods called Baals, which included the god called the Baal of Peor, were fertility gods. They promised abundant crops. They promised great wealth. Especially, they promised large families. So God's judgment was going to be very clear, very finely honed to in fact bring them the opposite. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. In fact, worse than that, he says they are going to be overrun by the dreadful Assyrian army. In such times as that, he says, it is actually the children, the children that you worship the Baal of Peor to have, it is those children who suffer the most terribly. Verse 12, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of every one. Woe to them, I will turn away from them. I've seen Ephraim like Tyre, planted in a pleasant land. But Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. The best that Hosea can pray for them is that they will actually have no children on that day. Verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them wombs that miscarry, breasts that are dry. At least then there won't be children to be slaughtered by the terrible Assyrians. See, uh, Hosea is saying that they never ever did learn the lesson of the Baal of Peor. They never did learn that lesson, that it was God who'd given them the freedom. Why couldn't they just simply worship God? And yet something very, very similar happens to Christians, you know. I spent quite a lot of my life working with, with uh, students and young people, and it, I have to say, it's very, very exciting. Because uh, at that stage of people's Christian lives, they're often so excited to be Christians. They feel so liberated, so free, so full of joy. All their sin has been forgiven in Christ's death on the cross. They are, they are free from condemnation for all eternity. It is very, very exciting. But I wonder what happens to those people in 20 years' time. You see, far too many of them are soon worshipping something else. The freedoms that they are actually striving to enjoy are the, the false freedoms of high social standing or a nice house or good holidays or just a little bit more money or the, or the perfect family or the perfect body or perfect health. And they wonder, as they get older, why actually they bear so little fruit as Christians. They wonder why the joy of their Christian walk has disappeared, why they feel so spiritually dry. Sometimes it is, frankly, because though they continue to mouth the same things, for their real satisfaction they have turned elsewhere. They see freedom not so much in terms of the glorious liberty of being forgiven by God, but in terms of making sure there's enough money in the bank or making sure that the health insurance is paid up to date. And we've got a lot of new Christians 
um, in the church at the moment who are, who are enjoying that, that uh, peace and liberty that comes from becoming a Christian. Let me warn you very seriously, it is never very long before we have a tendency to begin to forget what it was like before we were believers. Just as the Israelites forgot what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. And when, when that amnesia starts to set in, then other gods, the other gods that the rest of the world worships, suddenly become much more attractive. Remember, who gives you real freedom? And worship him. You know, it's possible that, that uh, you've been a Christian for some time, and, uh, and if you're honest, you realize that you've forgotten that. No, we, of course we acknowledge the same truths, of course we go to church, of course we pray, but actually our hearts are not focused on the eternal freedom that Christ has bought us by his death on the cross. Our hearts are obsessed with, with basically pagan agendas. Let me give you an example. British people are obsessed with their health. It's one of the top concerns in every survey that Tony Blair uh, 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 takes from his focus groups. Have you ever thought how essentially pagan it is, though, for a church to only pray for the bodily health of its members? That's the God NHS's agenda, which the pagans worship. The true God actually calls us to, to, to sacrifice our lives in service to him. And he promises us that if we do that, he will give us enough health to do what he calls us to do, to fulfill his purpose for us on the earth. Sure, we should pray for our bodily health, but it is in the context of that wider calling to serve God with our whole lives. If we remove that context and only focus on the healing of our bodies, we are actually in danger of, of moving towards worshipping another god. A god like the Baal Peor, who for certain favours offers fertility. We are in danger of moving away from the real God, enjoying the real eternal freedom that he gives us. Never forget where our freedom comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins to be given, forgiven for all eternity. All other things fit underneath that. But Hosea says, I have to say, the sorry story goes on of Israel. Let me take you to another spot, he says. This is the town of Gilgal. There, Israel forgot who gave them a home. Uh, chapter 9, verse 15. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. Gilgal was actually a famous spot to the Israelites because it was the, uh, the first base of operations which was established after they had finally entered the Promised Land. It was there at Gilgal that they'd, they'd first celebrated their Passover. I mentioned earlier that we visited the uh, Normandy beaches this summer. 
we actually went to Aramanche. Aramanche was the place where they built the, the, the famous floating Mulberry Harbour, which uh, was used to get all the ordnance of war ashore for the first few weeks after D-Day. You can still see the last uh, vestiges of, um, of that harbour out in the bay. As we uh, stood on the shore there, as we uh, looked around the little D-Day museum, we wondered whether we could ever really, with good conscience, let our children play on the beach. It seemed almost sacrilegious for them to run up and down on the very sand which had, had soaked up the blood of soldiers who had fallen never to run again. It would seem... Uh, Awful, really, to build sandcastles and play at knocking them down when we were in the shadow of uh, concrete bunkers from which uh, soldiers had killed so many others. Because, you see, when you go to a place like that, you can't help but remember. Sadly, says Israel, says uh, Hosea, Israel had no such qualms. Gilgal in Hosea's day was a thriving centre of pagan worship. The first home that God had given them in the promised land, the first little bit of, uh, of what would one day be, uh, be their full home, the promised land, was now, rather than a wonderful shrine to God's faithfulness, was now a centre, that, that very place, a centre of worship of other gods. So God says, in my way of justice, I am going to make you homeless again. Because of their sinful deeds, I'll drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted, their root is withered. Verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. I have to say, sometimes Christians forget what our real home is, don't we? The Bible's very, very clear, our home is in heaven. It says, actually, that the first outpost of our heavenly home is God's church. Not, not the building. Certainly not the building. It is the gathering of God's people. That is a foretaste of the final great gathering which will one day be completed in the new heaven and the new earth. Wouldn't it be ironic, then, if on this little outpost, this first gathering of God's people, if that became the centre of worship of other things, as it did in Hosea's day. We thought last week, didn't we, that we too easily, actually when we gather, adopt pagan attitudes to worship. We think that worship is a technique rather than an attitude of commitment to serving God with our whole lives. Actually, you know, one of the deepest ironies is that we idolise the buildings themselves. We call the building the house of God, don't we? The house of God in the Bible was the temple. 
and the temple was quite specifically destroyed in the New Testament because we are to worship God through Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Acts 17, uh, Paul actually who's talking to pagan philosophers in Athens acknowledges that even they knew that God doesn't live in temples made by human hands, but sadly Christians forget that. If, if you're a Christian here, then and actually this building is no more the house of God than your home is. Do you know that? To think that God is somehow specially present when we are in this building is quite specifically idolatrous because, because it is to worship God in a way that he has not prescribed. He of course he is specially present in one sense. He's specially present because we are gathered together and he promises he will be amongst us wherever we are gathered together. A group of Christians gathered together to adore God and listen to him and encourage one another is like Gilgal, a little outpost of the promised land, a little, little foretaste of heaven. But that can happen anywhere. And we, one day we may have to move out of this, uh, this building because it's too small, starting to get uh, bigger and bigger. You dread that because somehow it won't seem like we're worshipping God if we go into a school or something. See, that is actually quite specifically idolatrous according to the Bible because it loses sight of where God meets with his people how people are to worship him. Wherever they are gathered, he is there. Do not be diverted in any other direction, but focus on the home that God has really given us, the home which is in heaven, the home which is amongst his people, and do not allow that to be a place where other gods are worshipped, as they did at Gilgal. They forgot that God had given them a home. Don't forget. Well, Hosea's off on his little cook's tour again, though. And uh, uh, he moves on from that in uh, chapter 10 um, to not a specific location so much as the whole land now. And he says, uh, when you look over the whole land we find that Israel forgot that it was God who gave them riches. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. You see, Hosea's ha describing what happened after that. They, uh, they uh, first entered the promised land. They spread out, he says, like a, like a vine spreading out and bearing fruit. It was very, very exciting. But sadly, the richer that Israel got the more, actually, she invested her riches in pagan practices, in building altars, in adorning sacred stones. Ironically, God wanted his people to enjoy their riches amongst themselves, not constantly to build more altars. 
interesting characteristic of what he says about wealth. He says one altar is enough, frankly, in Israel. After that, your money is to be used to benefit your fellow man. The tithes that were paid in Israel went to, uh, almost exclusively to supporting the priests and the Levites or to looking after the poor amongst uh, the people. That's where they went. They weren't uh, spent then on constantly uh, re-adorning uh, uh, places of worship. But you see, these Israelites, as they'd got richer and richer, had lost touch of what God was really like. They thought that if only they invested a little bit more in some sort of worship, then of course it would pay back dividends for them. They weren't particularly concerned about other people. They were just concerned in, uh, in some sort of uh, pseudo-spiritual transaction. I give a bit of money and I get back even more. It's very exciting. Still goes on today, doesn't it? Health and wealth teaching is actually getting stronger in this country. People are told to invest their money in the church because God will pay them back ten times over. God wants you to be rich, say the preachers. Just fill in the details of your credit card on this form and uh, he will bless you. Actually, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says quite clearly, God wants you to be poor. So fill in the details of your credit card on this form and watch him bless others. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, if you don't believe me. That's what the Bible says. Jesus Christ was prepared to be poor to bless others. And real Christians must be prepared to do that too. Wonder how you use your money. See, we're all of us rich, effectively. We live in a rich country. Most of us can see through the sort of uh, simple health and wealth the theology that, uh, that gets peddled in some places. But I wonder, do you think of your money as a resource for yourself or do you see it as a resource to be enjoyed with others? Jesus said, you cannot worship both God and money. Either you will hate the one and despise the other, uh, love the one and uh, hate the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. If we love money, then one way or another we will begin worshipping it. And if we begin worshipping it, then sure as eggs and eggs, we will start having pagan ideas of God, just like these Israelites who multiplied their altars and adorned their sacred stones just so they get a little bit better cash back from God. Well, we've been to Baal Peor, we've been to Gilgal as they entered the Promised Land, we've been to over the whole land as they expanded and still insisted on having pagan ideas about God. But finally, Hosea takes us to uh, another specific location. It's the town of Gibeah, chapter 10, verse 9. There in Gibeah, they forgot that God does tell them how to live. Verse 9, since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? We studied the book of Judges a couple of months ago. You may remember the town of Gibeah. 
It was the town where a young woman was brutally gang-raped and left to die in the street. It was the town where finally Israel was so horrified by their own corruption as a nation that they made efforts to try and stamp out that corruption. But actually it only, only descended into a brutal civil war. The town where they looked on it and they said such a thing has never been done in Israel. But Hosea says, well, if it hadn't happened before, it's happened since. You've sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained, he says. This was a religious society. This was a society filled with so-called worship. This was a society where you couldn't move for altars and sacred stones and the traffic and paraphernalia of worship. But they didn't obey God any more than the men who'd gang-raped and murdered a poor young woman in Gibeah. I wonder whether we've made a decisive break with Gibeah yet. They hadn't up to Hosea's day. Or whether you're still there. Of course we haven't indulged in the extremes of rape and murder by and large. But you see, in its quiescent form, it is possibly even more dangerous, that quiet, hard-hearted refusal to obey God's commands. We forget. We forget that God gives us freedom. We forget that God gives us a home and, and uh, worship others, uh, other things in precisely the place where we should be worshipping God. We forget that God gives us the riches and we have pagan ideas of that and we forget that God tells us how to live and we just quietly say, I'll live my life my way. Thank you very much. Now in the film Saving Private Ryan, James Ryan never forgot. But we do, don't we? We must remember. I wonder how you do remember. About 15 years ago, I learned, perhaps uh, in a vivid way, how one can remember the Second World War. I visited the concentration camp Dachau. I have to say, it was one of the most terrible experiences of my life. At, at Dachau, they experimented on Jews. They filmed them going through the most terrible ordeals because they wanted to see the limits of the human body, the limits to which people can be pushed before they die. And they filmed them on the way to dying. And uh, in the centre of the camp, out on the exercise yard, there is now a, a monument. It's a very, very ugly monument. It's got barbed wire on it. And entangled in the barbed wire are these terrible, emaciated, screaming forms. And underneath on the plinth, there are just the words, lest we forget. We have to remember our history. We have to remember the bad things that can happen as well as the good. We have to learn the lessons. 
Christians have to remember their history too. They have to learn how they can go wrong. They have to learn to spot it. They have to remember. You know, this book perhaps should have written on it, lest we forget. Because it is the, the story of terrible disasters as well as a great and wonderful victory. It reminds us, in fact, of how people can break through, free from those idolatrous attitudes simply by trusting Jesus Christ. That is all that we need to do to be utterly free, assured of a home, totally rich, and actually wonderfully, joyfully submitted to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to win our forgiveness, to set us free from all those false attitudes. And we need to remember. Remember how people can go wrong. And remember too, how we can set, be set free. The people of God are people who simply worship Jesus. They get rid of all idolatries and they stand before him and they say, thank you, I remember. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, that you will give us eyes to see the way that uh, we so easily turn away from simple worship of you towards all sorts of false practices. And Lord, we pray that you will give us hearts that turn back to you and seek your forgiveness and commit ourselves to remembering remembering uh, the warnings of how we can go wrong and remembering the promise of Jesus Christ that he will stay faithful to us and forgive us our sins. Please forgive us, we pray, Lord, and set us on the straight path. In Christ's name.